And so what that tells me is that if you have not finished your Christmas shopping, the window of opportunity is narrowing by the second. And I'm going to tell you from experience, the first year that, uh, that Fair and I were married, I waited till Christmas Eve to go Christmas shopping. And I learned a very, very hard lesson, one that sticks with me to this day. Never again will I make that mistake. Because what happens is, is you're fighting with all the other men who did the same thing, and you're fighting over that one little insignificant trinket that's still on the shelf that nobody else wants, and that's why it's still there. Your options are very limited, so your window of opportunity is there. In fact, I'm just going to go ahead and dismiss. Let's go finish our Christmas shopping. What do you say? <laughs> is everybody awake? Are you okay? All right, awesome. Well, I'm excited tonight to be sharing with you in this service because I was scheduled to speak on the Wednesday night back in September when Hurricane Isaac spoke instead and service was canceled. So I have had this burning on the inside since then. I, I shared portions of it with the students, but I really have just been, I felt an unction and, an, and a, just a, a compelling, just ready to share this with our church. And I think actually now that it's all kind of come about, I think it's fitting that uh, we, we finish up the year on, on this sort of Bible study. I realize this is not quite the last service of the year, but close, um, probably my last opportunity to speak to you for the year, and uh, so it's just, I'm really excited about finishing up uh, the year on this note, and, and I'm just going to tell you, I, I'm into my lesson now. I'm not going to read a text. In fact, it's a good thing because I forgot to give my scripture to the sound to the media booth so I guess it's a good thing I don't have a text but I do have a scripture later in this presentation but uh, I'm just going to jump right in and, and so instead of reading a text I want to share a little bit with you about how I kind of got on this track and how God started dealing with me about about this title tonight I just want to talk to you about grace just want to talk to you about grace which of course is fitting being that we are called grace our church is grace and I hope tonight when we're done you understand a little bit more about that. But as a starting point tonight, I want you to understand that, that God really lit me up, if I could say it that way, uh, this past summer, early, late spring, early summer. God began dealing with me on the, on the idea and the subject of grace. And that may sound a little strange. You might think, well, you should know, you should know about grace, you know, having lived for God and all your life and being raised in church, but the, the actual reality is, is that the more I've gotten into this and the more God's spoken to me, the, the less that I understand grace, the less I realize that I know about grace. And so you have to understand, I, I was raised in church, thank God for it, raised apostolic, slept on the pew, you know, stomped on during the shouting service, the whole deal. And I have to say, and I, I want to say this tactfully, respectfully, because I certainly have no axe to grind tonight, no stones to throw, but the presentation of the gospel, I think, back then, 25, 30 years ago, was probably a little harder than it is. And in some ways, we, we, maybe we've lost something along the way because of that. Let me say, I am just thrilled. Pastor preached on conviction here a while back. The other, a couple of months ago, he preached on hell. And I thanked him after the service for preaching on hell because we need to hear it. I need to hear it. But really, I want my children to hear it. I want them to hear about the realities of the word of God. Two weeks ago, Pastor preached on the rapture. 
and our pulpits have been silent on some of these subjects for a long, long time. I'm thankful that we live in a, or that we're in a church where these sorts of things are taught, conviction is preached. So don't get me wrong on that. But the presentation 25, 30 years ago was such that in a lot of ways, in a, in a lot of people felt like it was almost too hard to live. In other words, it was too hard to really measure up to where God would accept you or that you were ever really good enough to be a child of God. And, and that came through a lot of times in the presentation. And, and to illustrate that, I will tell you this, as a young child, my brother's here, he'll tell you this is true. As a young child, my takeaway from church, my takeaway from sitting on the pew, I would go around repenting as a child, having committed, of course, atrocious and awful deeds, I would go around repenting under my breath 24 hours a day, seven days a week, because I, was, I lived in fear of a God that was going to execute me at any moment as a child. And literally, my parents set me down and worked me through that. So there was, there was just this idea, and maybe I was the only one, I, I, maybe that's the case, but I did not understand what this idea of a grace-loving, graceful God was all about. And so as I moved into my teenage years, uh, we started attending Grace Church, and I developed a relationship with God set under the ministry of our wonderful, wonderful pastor and leadership and began to understand what really living for God was all about and that God was not waiting to execute me. However... That being said, it wasn't until just a few months ago over the summer that God kind of took me to the next level of understanding about grace. And, and it just, it revolutionized my life. It revolutionized my walk with God. And I, I am changed because of it. I am uh, excited because of it. And frankly, I have been excited and could not wait to share it with you and and maybe you've got it, maybe it's just for me, and if that's the case, just listen in while I preach to myself tonight, because if, if I can present this the way I got it, and the way I understand it now, it's life-changing stuff. This is, this is, it will revolutionize your walk with God if you get a hold of this. So I want you to understand that tonight as we go in. The second thing that, has, that runs parallel with this and how I got on this track one night, uh, sometime in this calendar year, sometime in 2012, I, uh, I walked down on a Wednesday night from uh, after youth service, and I, I stuck my head in those back doors back there, and church here had concluded, but people had not left, and just kind of milling about and walking around, visiting, and I just, I just surveyed the crowd. I had no agenda. I wasn't looking for anybody. I just surveyed the crowd, and, it, and I, 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 was, I was just arrested in my spirit, I was stunned, if you will, uh, as I began to scan the crowd. And I saw, I saw one that was battling a terminal illness. And I saw one that was uh, battling a broken relationship. And I saw one with severe family problems. And I, just right down the line, just what little bit I knew about people in our church, they were battling serious issues in their life. And I thought, my God, this is what church ought to look like. It ought to look like a hospital, not a place full of people that have it all together, because we don't. 
not a place of people that are somehow perfect in all that we do because we're not, but a place where real people with real problems can come and have an encounter with the God that loves them with all of his heart, with a God that loves him, loves him with everything in him. And this is that kind of place. And it, it just absolutely wrecked me and worked me over that we are in a place that is literally a spiritual hospital and people have come in and maybe you don't know from the perspective that the leadership team knows the kinds of things that people are bringing in when they come and we're just saying you are saying as the church that you're welcome here and we'll take you and God will work in your life and in your situation we are blessed to be in a church like that. It's not that way everywhere. And so when I saw that and I had that revelation, all of this just kind of worked together. And so here we are tonight. So let's get started. Let's talk about grace. The word grace, the idea of grace, the concept of grace really escapes definition. It's, it's really, it's almost like, like the sunset. If you, if you try to define it, if you try to put it under a telescope or a microscope, you risk taking away its beauty. You risk breaking it down beyond what it was really meant to be. To be. And, and so really grace is something like a sunset that should be experienced. It should be, uh, it should be viewed or experienced to be understood and appreciated. Really grace should be imparted or conveyed more than it should be defined. But having said that, probably definition of grace that I know, the one I like to use, my working definition of grace is simply this, it's the unmerited favor of God, the undeserved or unmerited favor of Almighty God. Think about some words in our vocabulary tonight that take grace, take the word grace as a, as a root. Words such as grateful, words such as gratified, as in that good news was very gratifying to hear. Words like gracious, as, as in a host at a party that was very gracious. Gratuity, that is given for excellent service received. And words such as this, they echo grace, but they also echo the ideas of thankfulness for that which was undeserved. Thankful, thankfulness for that which was a little bit more than expected, a little bit greater than what we thought we would receive. Think of the idea of grace as in a grace note. If we have any music lovers or music people in the house, you know a grace note is added to a composition. It's not essential to the melody. It doesn't necessarily have to be there, but it adds a flourish that its presence would be missed if it were not there. It, it spices the piece of music, if you will. Um, perhaps tonight I could share a quick story, uh, just a real... Uh, earthly, earthy example, an everyday example of grace in my life. Last summer in, in, the, in August, I had to travel to New Orleans for a uh, business conference on a Saturday. It was a weekend conference, and uh, it was pouring down rain that Saturday, torrential rain. I, I fought that rain all the way down to New Orleans, and um, I know my way around New Orleans enough to get there, get, kind of get around. Uh, that particular day, my, my GPS wasn't working right. And, and, and though I could get you to general areas in New Orleans, I, I was going to an exact address, an exact place, and I didn't know exactly where it was on the street down in the French Quarter uh, at the hotel where the conference was being held. And so 
I was doing my best to kind of negotiate that, so I exited, and I, I knew that if I would go towards the river, I'd be headed in the right direction, and I picked up my cell phone, and I called uh, my wife, Farrah, and asked her to look it up on, on the map, on the computer, and kind of coach me in to get where I was going. So it's pouring down rain. I've got my cell phone in my hand, and, you know, I'm looking at street signs, and I just I blew through a red light, a stoplight. I, uh, I literally, it was one of those deals where I saw it, as I was in the intersection, Brother Billy, and then I was through it. I mean, just like that. I, it was one of those side ones, you know, on a pole. It wasn't across. And I, with the rain and the phone and not, you know, looking, I didn't see it. And I'm telling you, you know, just as luck would have it, there was New Orleans finest just waiting on me to go through that light. And he was not nice, Brother Billy. He was not nice at all. And so I explained the situation, no pity whatsoever. And so he gives me the citation. Well, when I got to the hotel and I read it, I realized he didn't just write me up for running the red light. I got careless operation of a vehicle. I got something else. I didn't even know what it was, some obscure statute somewhere. And it was over $600 worth of ticket. Just And I'm trying to get to my conference, you know. I'm trying to earn a living here. So I went back. Late, well, he, and the other thing was he gave me a court date like two days later. I mean, it was a good thing I wasn't flying out of the country or something like that. So I went back to my court date, and I got the opportunity to talk to the district attorney. And I explained to him, he asked me what happened, and, and buddy, I made it short and sweet and succinct and as polite and as kind as I could and explained the situation. And, and I said, look, I, I, I realize I, I ran the light accident, but I'm not sure about the carelessness of the operation and all this other stuff. And so... He, he drew a red line through him. He said, if you'll pay the red light, we'll take care of the rest. And got that ticket down, just a couple hundred dollars, which is kind of more what you'd expect. Still a lot of money. And we took care of it. So grace was extended to me. The district attorney of New Orleans or the city court guy, whoever he was, extended grace to me in that situation. But there's another point I want to make about that story, and that's this. And this is why we have or why we, or at least I, have such a hard time comprehending God's grace. Because we live in a, in a world, just our, our, our humanity, our, the way we operate, we live in a world where you break a rule, you face the consequences. Think about it. In school, you, you, you do something wrong, you face the consequences. You don't study, you fail the test. You, you run the red light, you pay the, con you pay the, the traffic ticket. We, we live in a paradigm where you break the rule, there's a consequence. And grace, as you're about to see, flies in the face of that. And so it's very hard for us to understand. It's very hard for us to comprehend that when it comes to grace and the forgiveness of God and the mercy of God, he is not acting out retribution like he could. In fact, grace is foregoing the opportunity to act out that retribution. And so grace has no room for rule breakers, it, or it does have room for rule breakers. It has room for those of us who don't quite have it all together. And so tonight, there, there are two really main broad points I'm going to make about grace. And we could talk, I mean, I've only got two hours tonight, so I've got to hurry. But we, we, there's a couple of points I want to make. We can't, we can't exhaust the idea of grace. Any one of these points we could do whole series on. But I want to give you two points tonight. But I got to sneak up on you on the first one, okay? So just bear with me. You're going to see where I'm going in a minute. But it's very important that I sneak up with, on you with this because I want you 
to, uh, I want to shift your paradigm a little bit. I want you to think about it just a little bit differently than what we are accustomed to because that's important. It's key to kind of starting to understand how God views this idea of grace so differently than we do. And so I want you to just sit back for a moment. I'm going to read you this story and uh, I'm going to tell you this story, read you this story. It's a little bit lengthy. It is a little bit, it's a little bit candid in a couple of places, but that's important to the story as well. And so just listen for a few moments as I work through this. It's very, when you see where I'm going, we're, we're, we're going to get there and you're going you're gonna to understand. Check, check this out. This is um, very, very fascinating. Listen to this. A young girl grows up on a cherry farm just outside of Traverse City, Michigan. Her parents are a bit old-fashioned, and they tend to overreact to her nose ring, the music she listens to, and the length of her skirts. They ground her a few times, and she seethes inside. I hate you, she screams at her father when he knocks on the door of her room after an argument. And that night, she acts on a plan she has mentally rehearsed dozens of times. She runs away. She has visited Detroit only once before on a bus trip with her youth group to watch the Tigers play. That's the Detroit Tigers, not the LSU Tigers. Because newspapers in Traverse City report the lurid details of the gangs, the drugs, and the violence in downtown Detroit, she concludes that this is probably the last place her parents will ever come looking for her. Her second day there, she meets a man who drives the biggest car she's ever seen, and he offers, her, he offers her a ride, buys her a lunch, arranges a place for her to stay. He gives her some pills that make her feel better than she's ever felt before. And she concludes to herself that she was right all along. Her parents were keeping her from all the fun. The good life continues for a month, two months, a year. The man with the big car, she calls him boss. He teaches her a few things that can make her some money. Since she's underage, men pay a premium. She lives in a penthouse and orders room service whenever she wants. She has a brief scare when she sees her picture painted on the back of a milk carton with the headline, Have You Seen This Child? But by now, she has blonde hair, and with all the makeup and body piercing she, that she wears, nobody would mistake her for a child. After a year, the first sallow signs of illness appear, and it amazes her how fast the boss turns mean. These days we can't take chances, he growls, and before she knows it, she's out on the street without a penny to her name. When winter blows in, she finds herself sleeping on metal grates outside department stores. Dark bands circle her eyes, and her cough worsens. One night as she lies there, no longer feeling like a woman of the world, in fact, she feels like a little girl lost in a cold and frightening city. Her pockets are empty, and she's hungry. She needs a fix. She pulls her legs tighter underneath her and shivers under the newspapers piled atop her coat. God, why did I leave, she says to herself, and the pain stabs at her heart. My dog back home eats better than I do. She's sobbing now, and she knows in a flash that more than anything else in the world, she wants to go home. Three straight phone calls, three straight connections with the answering machine. She hangs up without leaving a message the first two times, but the third time, she says, Dad, Mom... It's me. I was wondering about maybe coming home. I'm catching a bus up your way, and I'll be there about midnight tomorrow. If you're not there, well, I guess I'll just stay on the bus until it hits Canada. 
As the bus makes the seven-hour track to Traverse City, she rehearses the speech she has prepared for her father. Dad, I'm sorry. I know I was wrong. It's not your fault. It's mine. Dad, can you forgive me? When the bus finally rolls into the station, she checks herself in the compact mirror, smooths her hair, and looks at the tobacco stains on her fingers and wonders if her parents will notice, if they are even there. She walks into the terminal not knowing what to expect. Not one of the thousands, uh, thousand scenes that have played in her mind prepare her for what she sees next. There in the concrete walls and plastic chairs in the bus terminal of Traverse City, Michigan, stands a group of 40 brothers, sisters, great aunts and uncles, cousins, grandmother. They're all wearing goofy party hats and blowing noisemakers, and it taped, it taped across the entire wall of the terminal is a computer-generated banner that reads, Welcome Home. Out of the crowd of well-wishers breaks her dad. She stares through the tears quivering in her eyes like hot mercury and begins to memorize speech. Dad, I'm sorry. I know, and he interrupts her. Hush, child, we've got no time for that. No time for apologies. You'll be late for the party. A banquet is waiting for you at home. <clears throat> That's the story of the prodigal son told in 2012 terms. That's the story of the prodigal son that as Jesus' audience would have understood it. You see, we've heard it so many times, we've read it so many times, we've preached it so many times that, that much of the impact is lost on us. <clears throat> we get, we get kind of bogged down in pig food and pig styes. And I remember as a kid, we, at the Christian school I went to, we, we memorized the entire prodigal son. In fact, Sister Palmer was the one that taught it to us. And I'll never forget, it said, uh, uh, he fain would have filled his belly with the husk that the swine did eat. What in the world does that mean when you're eight years old? Fain have filled his belly. And we read that kind of language, we memorize that kind of language, and somewhere along the line it gets lost on us and we don't fully realize the impact and the grasp of what Jesus was trying to say. We also miss a few of the nuances of the story due to cultural differences. And one of them is this, is that when the prodigal son asked his father for his inheritance, in those terms, in those days, in that culture... He was telling his father, I wish you were dead. He was saying, if you would just go ahead and die, I could get what's mine. That's what he was saying to his father. Just like the girl in the story getting mad and saying, I wish you were dead. The second thing we miss, uh, or at least two things that I know of that we miss is this. Is that in those days, in that culture, a nobleman, a rich man, never would have run anywhere for any reason, for anything. Pastor mentioned this the other day when he was leading service, and I thought he'd gotten a hold of my notes. The, the man, the Bible says, when the father saw his son a long way off, he ran to him. Nobleman would not have done that. He would not have run, but, and, and Jesus' listeners understood that. But so great was the father's love for his wayward child. So great was his grace that the father was willing to put conventional wisdom aside, willing to put custom aside. Never mind that my son told me he wished I would die. Never mind the slam doors and the fit that he threw. I see my son on the horizon and I am running to him full of grace. 
Jesus was trying to impart to us the idea of grace in this story. The idea that God forgives with no strings attached. It's not grudgingly. It's not something we have to talk him into doing. It's not something we have to beg. He longs to forgive us. He longs to extend his grace to us. Henry Nowen, the theologian, said this. He said, God rejoices not because the problems of the world have been solved, not because all human pain and suffering has come to an end, not because thousands of people have been converted. God rejoices when one of his children who have been lost are now found. Oftentimes we think that we cannot possibly stand in the presence of God due to shortcomings and failures. There are those that think that, uh, that they will never measure up, they'll never add up. They'll, they'll always be found wanting in the scales and in the balance of God. But Jesus wanted us to understand that God doesn't look at us that way. He doesn't see us through those prisms. He doesn't see us through the, through the cause and consequence idea. But it's a grace that he extends to his children. Ernest Hemingway told the story of a Spanish father who decided to reconcile with his wayward son who had run away to Madrid. So... Now remorseful, the father takes out a, an ad in the El Liberal newspaper. And it said this in the ad. It said, Paco, meet me at Hotel Montana, noon Tuesday. All is forgiven, Papa. Now, Paco is a common name in Spain. So when the father gets to the town squares, he finds 800 young men named Paco waiting to be reconciled with their father. You see, it's, it, it's within us. It's, it's, it's in our nature. It's who we are. We want that reconciliation with the Father. We want that grace to be extended. But, but somehow we allow so many ideas and concepts and things we've, we've just kind of heaped onto ourselves along the way, baggage, if you will, and it keeps us from really making that step towards our Heavenly Father. And He's saying you don't even have to make that step. I'm seeking you. I want to go where you are. You don't even have to come to me. Think about this. When Jesus sat on the hill at Jerusalem, powerful story. Jesus says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that stonest the prophets, how often I would come to you, but you would not. Do, do you see what Jesus was saying? He's like, you have thrown it in my face. You have killed my messengers. You've killed my prophets. But I still want to be with you. I still want to wrap my arms around you. It's just you. you. I'm waiting on you. I just want you to realize that you are acceptable to me and my grace is extended to you. He, he has an intense longing to be with us, an intensity that, that he wants to reconcile with us. The second point I want to make about grace, and I want to draw from another parable of Jesus, and that's the story in Matthew chapter 20, verse 1 through 15, and, and Hannah, I, I failed to give that to you, my apologies. Um, but this is the story, and I'm going to read it to you, a little bit of it. But this is the story of, of the, the wages, the, the man that, uh, that paid the workers the wages. Jesus tells this parable, and he paid the guys at the end of the day the same, the guys that were hired at the end of the day the same as the ones that began at the, at the beginning of the day. And this parable is actually, if we look at it, it's actually about grace. And I want to I give you some thoughts on that. For the kingdom of heaven, he says in verse 1, is likened to a man that is a householder. He went away out early in the morning to hire laborers to his vineyard. And when he had agreed with the laborers for a penny a day, he sent them into his vineyard. 
And when he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace, he said unto them, Go also to the vineyard, and whatever is right I will give you. And they went their way. Again he went out about the sixth and ninth hour and did the same thing. About the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing idle. And he said unto them, Why stand you here all day idle? And they said unto him, Because no man has hired us. And he said unto them, Go you also into the vineyard, and whatsoever is right, that you shall receive. So when the even was come, the Lord of the vineyard said unto his steward, Call the laborers and give them their hire, beginning from the last unto the first. When they came, and when they came that were hired about the eleventh hour, they received every man their penny. Now watch this. But when the first came, here it is, they supposed that they should have received more. But they likewise received every man a penny. And when they had received it, they murmured against the good men of the house, saying, These last have wrought but one hour. These last have only worked an hour. Watch this. Thou hast made them equal unto us, which have borne the burden of the heat of the day. But he answered unto them and said, Friend, I did thee no wrong. Did I not agree with you for a penny? Take what is thine and go thy way. I will give unto the, to the last, even as unto thee. Verse 15, another highlight. Is it not lawful for me to do what I will with mine own? In other words, can I do what I want with what is mine? Can I, can I pass it out like I want to? This last crop of workers that the uh, goodman would have hired that were standing idly about, in the culture there, most likely they were just lazy, shiftless. You know, they said no man had hired us. It's probably because they didn't want to be hired. They weren't working real hard. And uh, they had not done anything to, extinguish themse to distinguish themselves. They were laggards. And uh, when, when they showed up and just lazed around for an hour, the, the other guys that had worked all day in the hot sun were absolutely shocked and scandalized that the goodman would have done this to them. What employer in his right mind would pay the same amount for one hour's work as he would for 12? Or, looking at it another way, did the employer in the story cheat the full day's worker by paying everyone for one hour instead of 12? You can look at it either way. Did he pay everybody for 12 or did he pay everybody for one? It depends on who you ask. Or it depends on your understanding of grace. Because grace cannot be calculated like a day's wages. Grace is not about finishing last or first. Here it is. Grace is not about counting at all. The full day's workers got what they promised. They were discontent because of the scandalous mathematics of grace. They could not accept that their employer could do whatever he wanted to with his money, even if it meant paying scoundrels as much as the good guys. To our finite imaginations, grace just doesn't add up. It just doesn't add up. Here's the significance of the story. As Christians, when we study this parable, what do we do? What do we do? If you're honest with yourself, we identify with the workers that worked all day, don't we? We don't think of ourselves as the laggard that came when I were. I don't when I read it. I'm like, yep, Lord, there I am, toiling away, taking one for the team. And we think of ourselves as responsible, etc. That When we do that, we risk missing the story's point, and that is this. God dispenses gifts, not wages. Very important. God dispenses gifts, not wages. None of us gets paid according to merit. 
because none of us comes close to satisfying the requirements. If paid on the basis of fairness, we all would be in hell. Robert Capon said this, he said, If the world could be saved by good bookkeeping, it would have been saved by Moses instead of Jesus. Here's the point. In the world of ungrace, in the, in the human way of thinking, some workers deserve more than others. Some people deserve more than others. Those who run red lights deserve to be fined. Those that break the rules deserve to face their consequences. But in the realm of God's grace, the word deserve does not even apply. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that amazing? In the mathematics of grace, the word deserve does not even come into the picture. It doesn't even come up. I grew up thinking of a mathematical God who always weighed our deeds, good or bad. And, and if the good did not weigh the bad, then, then, then we were found wanting. And he was, he was looking over the shoulder at all times. But grace says there's no calculation. There, there's no mathematics. There's nothing you can do to make God love you more. And there's nothing you can do to make God love you less. Isn't that a liberating thought? Bible says where sin doth abound, grace doth much more abound. And that gives me a lot of hope tonight because when I look around our world, it's so jaded, it's so messed up. We, we've been starkly reminded of that in, in the last several days. And, and it's just in this tailspin, it's spiraling out of control and there seem to be no answers. And, and God's, you know what God, he just says, no problem. The worse the world gets, the worse sin gets, the more horrific it seems. My grace just does more abound. That's just more room for grace. Is it, is it, and, and, and when you think about that, like sometimes if you, if you just start reading the headlines and going through the news and all that, you just say, God, it's overwhelming. It's just so much. And the scripture says, where sin doth abound, grace doth much more. So his grace is even more than all of that. It, it overwhelms that is how much grace he has. I'm concluding. Give me another five minutes. In conclusion, um, I want to end on this idea, this thought, this story. And it's also, it'll bring in a little bit of a seasonal uh, application as well. Last fall, the leadership team got to go to a conference together. We were very blessed to get to do that. A lot of what we learned we'll be implementing next year and we'll all reap the benefits of that. One of the things they did at the conference that was unique uh, they, we, got to, uh, we got to watch a five-minute video clip of a television series that's being produced uh, called The Bible. They're going to do a, a, a series on this and uh, depict all of the major stories of the Bible dramatically. And, and I'll just say I can't, I can't endorse it either way. I haven't seen it. I've just seen a five-minute promo deal for it. The reason I bring that up and, and, and uh, mention it tonight is, is during the course of that presentation... It showed, just, just real quick, I'm talking a matter of seconds, it showed the, uh, the manger scene, or it showed Bethlehem. It showed the, the whole scenario of the birth of Jesus Christ. And, and the way they did it, they, they zoomed in on Mary's face as she experienced birth pangs. And she was just, she was just contorted, and she was, she was in pain. And those of you that have, have had a child or, or been nearby when, when a child was born, you understand. And, and it, it, it stuck with me. I have not been able to get it out of my head. I've not been able to get it out of my mind. Because here again, busting up paradigms, busting up what we normally think. You know, we see these paintings of the manger scene. And we see 
uh, Jesus with a halo around his head, lying softly in the manger. And, and Mary's kind of like this, and Joseph's like this, and the angels are there. And, and we reali- I realized in a flash, just in a moment, that that is exactly not what it was like. It was nothing even comparable to that. And in fact, without, without going graphic here and without going too far, you all understand as adults that that whole scene was just one big mess. All right? There was nothing pretty about it. It was not, it was not uh, you know, just a, just a rolling out of the red carpet for the newborn king. Adding to that the mess that was in the stable, the, the animal dung, the mud, the rotten hay, the stench, just all of that whole deal was a mess. And it occurred to me that Jesus Christ was born into a mess. He was born into one big mess. Literally, physically, Jesus Christ came to this world in a mess. And I'll leave it at that, but you get the point. And so... I think, personally, having meditated on that and processed all of this information about God's grace, that he was trying to tell us something. And that is simply that he is not afraid of the mess. He is not afraid of your mess. He's not afraid of my mess. He's not afraid of whatever kind of mess somebody might bring in those doors. In fact, we're studying a book on the leadership team and it just says Jesus runs towards the mess. And I believe that that's what his grace is really all about. I believe that Jesus is attracted to the mess. And sometimes we think that here comes a mess and we, oh, I, I, I just can't, I can't get there. I can't get to my father because of my mess. And I want us to turn our thinking upside down tonight and realize that, in fact, the opposite is true. He is drawn to you tonight if you are in a mess. That is absolutely his passion. And so tonight, I want us to get a hold of it. If you're here tonight, if there's somebody here tonight and you're wrestling with something in your, in your spirit or in your life and you're, something's broken, something needs to be fixed, I want you to know you're in the right place, not only physically, but you're in the right place spiritually because God wants to do something in your life. I'm not saying you're messed up, but I'm just saying if you feel like your life is a mess, God wants to work in your life. But the second thing is, is I want to challenge us as grace. And I love our name. Thank you, Pastor. Years ago, I remember when you named the church Grace. I remember it very distinctly. And I think it was by revelation and inspiration and will of God, the, the more I get into this, we have the perfect name for a church, Grace. Because we as a church body, we as believers, whether it's one of our own or whether it's somebody that walks in those doors, our job is to extend grace to them. Our job is to mirror the grace of our Father to them and let them find the same kind of healing and hope, forgiveness and restoration that we have found in our life. That's our job. And I want to tell you, Grace, you do a phenomenal job of that. You do an awesome job of that. So tonight, I'm not here to, to, to reprimand or rebuke. I'm saying you do a great job, and I want us to go into 2013 doing, continuing to do such a great job of just loving people, of walking towards the mess, of putting our arms around people and letting them see what a loving father looks like. I heard a story, and I, I'm, I'm done. Give me one minute, one minute and a half. <clears throat> last, last week, literally last week, somebody told me a story of a church somewhere between here and there that, that a, an individual is not welcome there because of a mistake they made 
10 or 15 years ago. And I don't get that in light of what we're studying here tonight and in light of what I am now understanding our Heavenly Father is like. I don't get how anybody would not qualify for church. None of us, what we, we don't qualify for church. I don't qualify for church, really. But we, because of God's grace, everybody's welcome. And so going into 2013, let's just, let's just make some room. Let's just make some room for people that need to see a heavenly father. C.S. Lewis said it like this. He said, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in us. I love that. I love that. God has forgiven the inexcusable in us. So as you stand tonight, I finish the way the Apostle Paul finished so many of his epistles. And now I understand how relevant it was. He just simply said, grace be with you all. Grace be with you all. Let's pray together. Jesus, I am so thankful, God, for your grace. Lord, I, I still don't understand it. I can't fathom it. Don't understand why I don't get retribution like I should, Lord, but I'm starting to get a glimpse of it, Lord. I'm starting to, to get just a hint of the kind of love you have for your children, and it's liberating, God. In fact, it's almost intoxicating, Lord, when I understand the fullness of your love for me and for us and for our church, God. And I, I can go tonight living in your grace and living in your peace because your love is that of a father, and it is overwhelming to me and in my spirit. Lord, Thank you for such a wonderful church, a wonderful body of believers that has extended grace in so many ways to so many people. Lord, and I believe you're going to send us opportunities in the coming year to do that even more. So, Lord, we pray tonight that grace would be with us all. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name.